The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. As the UK is trying to change the language at the UN to pregnant people, not pregnant women. It's the language in a treaty, and they don't want to exclude, you know, non-women who are having children. How many non-women had children just last week alone? It's I can't even, I mean... Oh, that's why it needs to be changed. That's right? why it needs Word to be changed. changed. Yes, because it was zero last week as well as was every week since the dawn of time. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for coming back if you've listened before. And if you're new, I hope you find Reform This to be that voice you've been waiting to hear, where we ask the questions that few will ask, where you hear a Muslim, you'll hear a Muslim voice unafraid to take on the issues that few will take on. Week to week, I'll confront the areas within my own faith of Islam that need reform. I'll confront the political landscape, what we missed, what we should have heard, what we didn't hear from the mainstream media, and what you should be hearing on your day-to-day walks, talks, and drives. This week, I want to start with some of the amazing pronouncements that were coming out of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi king proclaimed that they will advance and bring back, they said, bring back moderate Islam. Okay, well, um, we've heard that before, haven't we? They said they're going to declare a war and doggedly go after extremists. They didn't say Islamists, they said extremists. And I then had a debate on Al-Hurra, the American uh, Arabic television station, which airs in Iraq, and hopefully will air in many more countries. And I was asked to come to talk about what these pronouncements mean. And I have to tell you, God bless Americans. Uh, you know, they hear this and they, I got so many messages from people this week. Oh, did you hear what the crown prince MBS, Mohammed bin Sultan said, Mohammed bin Salman said that they are going to bring back moderate Islam. They're going to take it on. I said, um, we've heard this song before. To the Saudis, everything is a PR operation. They now see that ISIS is on the verge of complete decimation, not only in Iraq, but also in Syria, because finally our president has given the DOD, the military, the leeway they needed to fight the war in a way that decimated ISIS forever. And now that ISIS is disappearing, people are going to start going back to saying, well, wait a minute, let's maybe now that the imminent immediate threat is beginning to go away. Let's look at what created ISIS. And as I told the representative, Medani, or I can't remember what his name is, but the the Saudi 
government representative that I debated who said, oh, we are going to take on and create a climate that eschews extremism and brings back the glory days of a moderate Islam. And I, I said, Islam has been suffocated by your country. Through petrobillions, your people have been suffocated with the inability to ask the difficult questions that would be necessary to ask to reform. Reform only comes from renewal. Renewal only comes from critical thinking and honest introspection and contrition about what the precursors are to militant extremism. What you called extremism doesn't come out of thin air. Nonviolent Extremism is the precursor to violent extremism. And they think Americans are idiots that somehow, if men in beards and long robes talk about peace and condemn terrorism, then they must be good religious people. That gig is up. After 9-11, President Bush fell for this Islam is peace. And yes, my Islam is peace, but... The establishment, the Islamic establishment, is not peace. The Islamic establishment is about jihad, about Islamic republics, about militaries that oppress and suffocate and torture and whip their own people. And the Saudi government is about that. They can release as many press releases as they want to talk about what they see as a way to deceive us. That Oh, in 2030, that's the king's plan. The king's plan is 2030, Saudi Arabia, modern kingdom. And this week, what else did they release? They released that they're planning a half a trillion dollar industrial complex between Jordan, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. Maybe a lot of jobs there, but they're all slaves. Enslavement with no critical thinking, with no disruption. You can't reform against the ideas that create militants like Al-Qaeda and ISIS unless you have disruption of the very purveyors of the Islamism, of the Islamic State. And this guy I debated on Al-Hurra responded and said, Wahhabism is demonized and only the secular extremists demonize Wahhabism. Wahhabism is is misunderstood, he said. Seriously? I said, You've, you're now calling me a, sex, a, 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 a secular extremist? When in fact, the reason the Saudis, and I said this on air, the reason the Saudis have never, have never produced any product worth sale in any market across the planet other than oil is because they do not allow inventions, they do not allow modern thinking, modern thinking and critical thinking and analysis and disruption. True democracy and innovation and modernization comes with critical thinking and invention. Wahhabism is against invention. Wahhabism is about looking back into a black and white world that I wouldn't want to live, that nobody wants to live in. That's what the Saudis think we should embrace, is their clean and sterilized version of Islam, which is a prison, 
an open-air prison. And then Prince Al-Walid, the Saudi billionaire who's the playboy prince that funds most of the Muslim Brotherhood activities in the, in the West, or many of them, then predicted that Bitcoin would implode like Enron. He said this week that Bitcoin would implode like Enron. My response? The best thing that could happen to the Muslim world is for his royal family to implode like Enron, for Petro-Islam to dry up and implode like Enron. Because if we really want to see reform, it has to start with a clean slate. No more oppressive governance. Yeah, maybe a transition process might be helpful. But ultimately, there's going to have to be a change. The switch is going to have to go off between autocracy and revolutionary self-governance with political parties and diversity that will then marginalize the theocrats into the dustbin of history and allow people to regain what is supposed to be an Islam, a non-clerical religion. We're not supposed to have intermediaries. There's no clergy. Islam is closer to Judaism in that way and that rabbis are teachers, imams are prayer leaders and teachers. They're not supposed to be societal governmental leaders and write our laws. Sharia, that word isn't even in the Quran, barely. Maybe the root, but it only means the pathway to the watering hole that we each determine in the interpretations that we have of what we believe God tells us in the Quran. So don't be fooled with the window dressing that is the Saudi regime, the window dressing, the, the fake news that ultimately deceives Americans into thinking that they're with us. And a few cathartic words of getting rid of extremism is not going to change anything. This is Dr. Zudi Jasrik. Welcome back. We'll be right back with another segment on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. So much to talk about across the world. The immigration issue, refugees, a lot happened this week on that front. Pew had another study out this week, and uh, I want to dive into that. But one last comment about the Saudis we were just talking about. Listen, I understand that we have alliances. I understand that we don't want to 
overturn regimes too quickly or marginalize them as we they are a, a bulwark in some ways as a balancing influence, especially in the Sunni side against Iran and Khomeinist and their sponsorship of terrorism. But at the end of the day, I think it is beyond essential that we understand exactly what the long-term game is across the Middle East and across Muslim-majority countries because, sure, we can have short-term alliances, especially military ones, but long-term, as I've talked to you before, we should not be too chummy with folks that share none of our values. And the Saudis make no mistake. I was mentioning the debate against their Saudi rep on American Arabic television was very important because to the nth degree, they every royal family member I've ever talked to will go out of their way to defend the ideology of Wahhabism. Even behind doors, they don't whisper and say, oh, that's not real Islam. We just have to, we just have to back them up because 80% of Saudi Arabia is radicalized with their ideas. No, they won't even say that. They'll say that Wahhabism is even misunderstood by the extremists. So just as we did in the Cold War, we never cozied up to moderate, non-violent, non-Soviet communists in our desire to defeat the Soviets. Maybe in the short term, we might have helped a few or maybe sided with some of the juntas here or there. I doubt it, though. We were pretty much more clear-headed about who were and who were not our allies, but we seem to have lost that compass. We haven't even gained it. We're going to talk, uh, I think, in the next segment, uh, spend a little time about the refugee situation and what we should be doing with that. But I want to, this segment, uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, the latest study that came out of Pew. There's a lot to talk about there, but specifically, they laid out how the left versus right views Islam. And they divided Americans into these new constructs. I, I have to tell you, I disagree with the constructs. I think that it's allowing some of the Trump movement to define what it means to be a conservative and some of the Hillary movements or Bernie movements to define what it means to be a liberal. And I think many of us on each side of that equation should be offended by that and say that, you know what, we're still feeling these things out, but they most right, they called them core conservatives. The next right, they called country first conservatives, then market skeptic Republicans, and then new era enterprisers as supposedly the nearest to the center. And then on the left, they called them the most centrist, devout, and diverse. Fascinating choice of words there. Then they called them disaffected Dems, the next left, further left opportunity Dems, and the furthest left solid liberals. And then they put them on the scale of comparing whether they feel Islam is the most most or more likely to encourage violence than any other faith, or it does not encourage violence more than any other religion. And, as you would have expected, totality left versus right is 49% do not believe it's more than any other religion, and 43% on the right 
believe it's more likely than any other religion. But then you look at the solid liberals, the furthest left, it was 83% believe that it's not any more than any other religion. And the furthest on the right, the core conservatives, believed 79% that Islam is more likely to encourage violence. So why does this seem to pattern along what they've defined as the continuum from left to right? Uh, again, I think a lot of this is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy based on the way the media conversation is on Islam. And that's really my message for you is you can look at the Pew poll definitions and argue with them on your dinner tables this week as to whether you're a core conservative or a solid liberal or a market skeptic or a new era enterpriser. I have to tell you, as a conservative, I felt I included many of these things. A new era person, I was... Sometimes market skeptic, other times very country first, but also a core conservative. So I think most American conservatives are going to find themselves along most of these uh, paradigms. But what is telling here is we're reproving that the echo chamber that is the left and the echo chamber that is the right will cultivate and pollinate its own ideas and its own perceptions. And I would tell you that whether they perceive Islam as violent or not is not the question. How about we ask them what they feel solutions are to defeating radical Islam and promoting the stability and the security of the West and the advancement of liberalism and defeat of the ideas that cultivate radicalism in Muslim-majority countries? What is the strategy? Is everything so ethnocentrically focused on Washington and New York and California in America? This question about Islam, there's only three or four million Muslims in America. So what do I care what Americans think about whether Islam is peaceful or not? I care about what they think about Islamism because I think there's nothing more American than Americans locking arms with us so that they won't send their sons and daughters to fight wars for Muslims, but rather locking arms and saying, we will take sides within the house of Islam and we will call out Islamists, the theocrats, as the enemy of our society, and we will call out the secularists, those who believe in liberal democracy, as our allies. That's what the continuum should be. So again, Pew proves to sort of be able to tell us the color of the paint on the wall. Oh, look, you painted your house green. Yeah, let's poll people. Is that green or is that blue? It's sort of like the ridiculous CNN ad that came up this week about fake news or not. This is an apple. It looks like an apple. But then they'll tell you it's a banana. We're here to tell you it's an apple. Yeah, okay. We get it. You think you're not lying to us. But, oh, this week when, forget the fact that you've been covering Russia wall-to-wall for nine months, and then finally this week we get some evidence that the left is just as much in bed with Putin as the right was in some ways, that all of a sudden Russia is not on the top of your propaganda list anymore. When it came out that the Trump dossier was related to funding 
from the DNC and Hillary Clinton trying to uh, do what they call now opposition research, but a week ago it was called collusion. All right. Yeah, so I'll step off from the politics uh, since that's what I don't want to get into here. But at the end of the day, I think it's important to realize that too many of these conversations end up being about the center of axis of gravitational pulls about left versus right instead of the paradigm of who gets it and who doesn't. And I would tell you that the paint on the wall as defined, it seems on the right, maybe too many believe that Islam is the problem, but more understand that Islamism is the real problem and counter-Islamism is the solution. On the left, many people, I think, understand that Muslims are the solution, but too few, if any, even are willing to talk about Islamism as being the problem. So forget the apologetics. Let's talk about solutions, solutions, solutions. Instead of just polling what is so obvious in a severely polarized country. This is Zudi Jass. We'll be right back on the Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This week, the issue of refugees, the the pause, the ban, actually expired. The ban expired. supposed to be heard before the Supreme Court, and on Tuesday it had reached 120 days, and the Trump administration just sort of let it expire. So all of a sudden now, they need to start reprocessing or processing anew the refugees that were in line. I don't know what's going to happen with the Supreme Court case. I think ultimately it may be moot. They already basically delayed it and said the president has a right to name these things and there's no reason to stop it. The Hawaiian judge tried again to call it a Muslim ban and reject it. And yet... This week, we saw the president had decreased the numbers from the 100-plus thousand that President Obama had allowed in. Now, he had had significantly limited numbers until the last two years. Last year was 80,000, and then this year was supposed to be, in 2017, 115,000. And President Trump decreased those to... Forty-five. Now, I obviously have some bias with family in Syria, but uh, I think what America is, what we stand for, what we represent as the place for those who seek freedom, liberty, and share our values, is an ideological win, dominance for us that we should never surrender. Now, limiting the numbers, etc., I don't think that surrenders that we should limit the numbers until we know how to vet but we should never ban or pause immigration, even from the most dangerous countries, because that's what makes America even more unique than Europe, that bizarrely has been accepting more refugees, even though their countries are not 
as well positioned ideologically as countries that have identification that embraces immigration, that embraces giving Muslims or any immigrants, Hindus, Christians that come from India or from Japan, wherever it might be, to then embrace their German or French or newfound Dutch nationalism and believe that that means the same for a immigrant as it does for a native Dutchman, Frenchman, or woman. But in America, my parents felt American the moment they got here. My parents felt American the moment they bought their first house within six months of getting here and getting political asylum. That was the American dream. They had a congressman represent their ability to come into this country, as he did many others, seeking asylum, seeking freedom. Those stories are by the thousands across the country. And this week, President Trump showed that his administration is going to begin to allow them in. Now, we saw a few days later then the Trump administration imposed new restrictions on refugees from 11 high-risk target countries. Now, it seems to have expanded those six countries. The list wasn't out yet, but some have assumed it was Iran, Libya, North Korea, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, with the additions of Egypt, Iraq, Mali, North Korea, South Sudan, and Somalia. Now, as the head of Homeland Security, Elaine Duke, said, the security of the American people is this administration's highest priority, and these improved vetting measures are essential for American security. And listen, the vetting measures that they did and they instituted this week are, are very smart. It includes a deeper dive into social media footprints on Facebook, etc., a deeper dive into the layers of familial identification, and then they cross-pollinate the interview process to see if there's any deception, inconsistencies, incongruencies that then reveal that they're being lied to. Very important mechanism of vetting was not part of the process until now. My disappointment this week comes in the fact that I, listen, us reformers, many of us, defended the pause, defended the fact that this needed to wait because the president had talked about convening a commission on radical Islam. The president had talked about rebooting the vetting process. But listen, you know, I'm pretty involved in this stuff nationally, and I didn't hear of any of my colleagues being asked what should be the new vetting questions. How do we interview? Remember, you and I had a podcast six months ago where I, I did a mock interview with Ahmed, the Syrian refugee, and what we should be asking him. What does he believe about jihad, apostasy, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad? I went through all of that. There's nothing wrong with asking. Now, people say he could prepare, but that's also when you look for consistencies or inconsistencies and in different methods of questioning. And then with his social media platform, what he's posted, it's easy to put these pictures together nowadays. And yet, none of that was discussed 
The 120 days ended and there's no commission on radical Islam. There's no verbiage coming out of Homeland Security. I read you their statement. There's no verbiage coming out that now we are going to shift from countering violent extremism to countering violent Islamism. None of that. So how does that then become now that we have this great new vetting procedure? Yeah, that's improved. I have to tell you, though, it's not that hard to improve on the complete submission that was the Obama administration. Just some clarity and strength in handing, giving more leeway to Homeland Security, DOD, state, etc. Now, maybe not state, but uh, for, for security is an important thing. I say maybe not state because the state's just completely infested with Arabists and, and uh, apologists for America. Sad to say. So, yes, their screening is going to become tougher, but we don't know what that's going to entail. So please, I hope, I pray, media, universities, academia, government, push the Trump administration to actually begin vetting against Islamism because that is when I will believe we have actually made some serious progress. Yes, we made some progress since President Trump took over. Yes, we've begun to actually be better at filtering against that 20% that I mentioned to you that has sympathy for ISIS. I have a feeling it's going to have a harder time for them to get through now. But I want to even reject more that are not only not sympathetic for ISIS, but that are Islamists. If they're coming here, they better share our worldview and they better reject the Islamist worldview. Share our worldview and reject the Islamist worldview. That's it. How hard is that to ask? Is that is that is that too much for an American citizen to ask? For a Muslim to ask? That love my faith but love my country more? Yes, I love my faith, but that's between me and God. For this country to succeed, we all need to be able to love our faith equally and not one more than the other and make it into a Islamic state as the Islamists want. They better not be coming here if that's what they want. But until we have a national conversation about that, they will try to come here and we won't know how to stop it. Until this administration or any administration engages Muslim reformers. This is Suda Jasser on Reform This. We'll be right back for our last segment. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand. Uh, Macy's, American Apparel, Gap, uh, JCPenney, Joseph Bank, uh, Men's Warehouse, Radio Shack, Sears. Those companies between them have closed over 1,500 stores. A lot of employees gone. It means anchor tenants in malls are gone. Well, these are all big companies run by smart people. What went wrong? It's very simple. You know the answer right away. What went wrong? People started buying online. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. There is a darling in the Western Islamist circuit 
who is the grandson of Hassan al-Banna. Who's Hassan al-Banna? Hassan al-Banna is the founding father, the primary original leader in Egypt who was in prison and then ultimately killed by Nasser's regime, Jamal Abdel Nasser, for leading and founding the Muslim Brotherhood. His grandson was taught at Ramadan. Now, obviously, grandson, um, I believe it was because his granddaughter was married to Tariq Ramadan's father, Sayyid Ramadan. So, his grandson followed in the lineage now, asked over and over. I'm not going to go deeply for you. I've written quite a bit about Tariq Ramadan and my problems with him. He is what I would describe as a neo Salafi, neo-Salafi Islamist, he would reject that label, and labels are sometimes hard to explain for those that aren't knee-deep in it, but he took, he takes Salafism, the desire to look back and imitate the Prophet, and puts a modern spin on it. That's neo-Salafism. He takes the Islamic State concept and its Sharia law, Islamism, and puts a modern spin on it. Carolyn Forrest, in Brother Tarek, her book is a must-read book. Must-read. Because she dissects and dissects over and over the hypocrisy, the duality, the dissimulation that some call taqiyya. Uh, with him, I, I, I'm not sure that it's taqiyya. I think it's it's clearly dissimulation in which he believes the modernization of Islamic Democracy, Islamic party politics, Islamism. He believes, no different than Shadi Hamid, I believe his cousin, not cousin literally, but metaphorically at Brookings, who works with Qatar as Tariq Ramadan, also had a chair at Qatar, close to Qardawi from Qatar, in Qatar, who had been from Egypt. All these guys, the Egypt-Qatari relationship come European-American relationship is all the same conduit. Well, Tariq Ramadan has written books on reform and his form of reform, no different than Yusuf Qardawi's Islamism 4.0 or Neo-Islamism. Well, this week, we're going to cover this in the future also. This story is not going away. But as we see the revelations coming out initially, last year with various pundits on Fox and other networks in the last few weeks we've heard about Harvey Weinstein's not only fall from grace but all of the women in his path that were abused and and possibly molested or raped whatever it might be as horrific as that is a former Salafi scholar who then became a feminist, had named in her book a rapist, had named in her book somebody who had attacked her and she called him Zubair. Her name is Henda Ayari. She wrote a book in which she described how she had been a victim of something very serious several years ago, but she did not release the name. She called him a pseudonym by the name of Zubair. 
and decided and decided this week that the time had come for her in her book I chose to be free published in November to describe exactly who her aggressor Zubair was and she said that I confirmed today that the famous Zubair is taught at Ramadan she published that on Facebook Ramadan Obviously, everybody's innocent till proven guilty. We will see if anybody else comes out, reveals themselves. If this is an isolated case, doesn't matter. We need to listen to her story. We need to understand if the neo-Islamism, if the man who said that corporal punishment, hudud, should not be condemned but simply a moratorium, that was the famous debate that he had with Sarkozy in France. Sarkozy asked him to condemn explicitly corporal punishment under Sharia, and he refused and said, well, I won't agree with it, but I think a moratorium should happen. He feels that that's how you get scholars to change, is that you engage them and you don't minimize, etc. He looked upon it as a technique, and he was soundly and roundly condemned as pre-modern as un-European and not sharing in French values and that marginalized him. So perhaps some of these draconian ideas are wrapped into a man who is patriarchal, who does not actually believe that women are equal to men and has had experiences in his life that are domineering, that are exploitative. Now, everybody's innocent until proven guilty, and hopefully the French police and others will look into this case and act on it if it's punishable. Hopefully other women will come forth. But his is a household name. And ultimately, I think it's reflective. There was another individual that also had been exposed as a, miso- a misogynist who had possibly attacked and raped some of his students or had a relationship with them. We heard of Muhammad Salim from Chicago, a cleric that had been exposed for various sex allegations. Another prominent Islamist out of Houston, on and on. And actually, Tarek Ramadan, there was a video three, four months ago in which he defended and said that we need to understand that female circumcision is what he tried to call FGM, female genital mutilation, was part of our culture, part of our religion. And I found that offensive and distributed as an example of how radical, oppressive, and misogynist he is. And yet he was still the darling of the left because of his smooth, silky French tongue and absent and accent. And he had been a professor at Oxford. And yet we asked, why is it that he's given a perch on press TV and Iranian press and nobody seemed on the left to ask any questions and we said it's not a surprise that he seems to feel at home with the men in long beards and robes who treat women as chattel and slaves 
he may come across with a lot of women fawning over him that love him because he talks about their freedom and equality much more so than any of the older generation Salafi jihadists or Islamists. But the bottom line is, as it may appear, we'll wait to get the details and watch the story as it unfolds, but it may appear that he'd lived a double life, that he figured out how to dissimulate for the West and tell us here what people think they want to hear. But then internally, he was his grandfather's grandson. There's a lot to be learned here. People can't change the stripes of their zebra outfit. And people will reveal themselves. This is why I talk about these things week to week. We should be held accountable to who we are week to week, day to day. It should all fit the same narrative. It should expose what we reject and what we accept. Nobody's saying that he shouldn't be innocent till proven guilty. But he's not only guilty if this is proven of what this poor girl that we should, by the way, it's amazing how here's a guy who has achieved achieved a significant amount of prominence and all of a sudden now in order for us to not be critical of him, we have to reject wholly the courage of somebody like Ms. Ayari and what it took for her to talk about this in her book, I Chose to Be Free. The story she didn't make up after Harvey Weinstein's story. It was in writing. It's in her book. But the strength and the power, the courage to be able to expose it as him came after she saw the many, many women with the courage to come out and take on icons in various industries from Hollywood to academia to government. So we'll follow the story. But I can guarantee you this podcast is not a sanctuary for any Islamists or non-Islamists. That we will hold ourselves and everyone accountable to the same moral constructs. Thank you for joining me this week on Reform This. I look forward to being with you again next week. This is Zudi Jasser. God bless. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network.